In this particular portion of scripture, chapter 34, Elihu is going to continue his speeches explaining and defending God. And so I'm entitling this portion of of the scripture, Explaining and Defending God. Job chapter 34, beginning in verse 1, Elihu further answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose justice for ourselves. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks scorn like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Job continues along the same lines as the so-called three friends. He will begin by expressing charges against Job. It is his second speech and there's more to come. In the Moody Bible commentary it says, Elihu felt Job had lied about his innocence. That he strived to defend God based on an inaccurate knowledge of Job's situation, which started with his dispute in heaven and not with his own gross sin, unquote. In other words, Elihu continues to make charges and accusations based on what Job has said and based what the friends have said. But we've repeatedly reminded ourselves none of them have access to the first two chapters of Job. Elihu thinks that he speaks for God. He thinks that he's expelling and, and representing and defending God. And remember, he's already said, listen to me. I'm filled with the Spirit. A.W. Tozer wrote, quote, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him, unquote. Tozier understood that if you have less than an appropriate attitude and understanding of God, the chances are you're going to mislead people. Elihu thinks that he has a right understanding about the nature and character of God. What kind of a God is God? We've asked this question over and over again throughout our study. Augustine said, what then is the God I worship? You are the most hidden from us and yet most present among us, the most beautiful and yet the most strong, ever enduring, and yet we cannot comprehend you. It was his way of saying, we think we know about you. And the further that we explore and the deeper we go and the greater we try to get a grip on who God is and what kind of God is God, we discover that we know so little. Elihu's speech is intricate and detailed and nuanced. David McKenna suggests 
that analytical minds will savor the process. By that he means Elihu will make a charge and then he'll defend the charge and he'll explore the charge from every single angle. And then McKenna says, the philosophical minded will continue to ask the question, why are you saying this? What's your point? What's your purpose? What is the point that you're trying to make, Elihu? And of course, here's the challenge. He wants to defend God and he wants to condemn Job. And by the way, if your theology is a theology where in order to uphold God's majesty, God's righteousness, God's justice, you feel inclined to figure out a way for people to go to hell, then somehow you're missing part of the point of the gospel. Is God just? The answer is yes. Is sin horrible? The answer is yes. Is there a savior who expresses love and grace and mercy? Is the God, the God of heaven, is God a God who's looking for reasons to condemn people? Or is he a God who is looking for reasons to forgive them and reconcile them back to himself? And that's the challenge. That's the challenge that Elihu is presenting to us. So look what it says. Elihu further answers and said, Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. Now, in the earlier chapter, Elihu promised no flattery. He basically said, Look, I'm a spirit-filled guy. I'm not going to take sides. I'm not going to take the friend's side against Job. And I'm not going to take Job's side against the friends. I want to be the voice of reason. I want to be the voice of mediation. He promises no flattery and then he repeatedly calls Job's friends wise men. We also get the impression that Elihu wonders whether or not he's holding his audience. Because he keeps saying, give ear. Listen carefully. He does so in chapter 33, verse 1. Again in verse 31. Chapter 33, verse 30. And then chapter 34, verse 2, verse 10, verse 16. I know that there's some very famous preachers, one who I happen to love a whole lot, who is fond of making the expression, now listen up, because what I'm about to say is very important. And I don't mind him saying that, but he does it so much that I wonder if he's a little bit insecure. But Elihu is doing exactly that. Have I lost you yet? Are you listening, he's basically saying. In verse 2, he says, Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. It's his way of saying, if you're smart and wise, then you're going to resonate with what I'm saying. And then he says in verse 3, For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. We all know that we listen with our ears. We taste with our mouth. The discerning palate can recognize and differentiate between fruit and the worm in the fruit. By the way, do you know what's more troubling than finding a worm in your apple? Yeah, you know the answer. 
finding half a worm in your apple. Because you couldn't tell the difference. When he says, for the ear tests words, it's a poetic way of saying, listen with the inner voice, with the voice of reason. He's inviting you to listen and to pay attention and then to reason. He says in verse 4, let us choose justice for ourselves. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Now the word justice, of course, is an important word. It's a reoccurring word, not only in the Bible, but in the book of Job. When it says for Let us choose justice for ourselves. It's the Hebrew word mishpat. And mishpat was a word that meant a lot. And let me give you just some ideas. The word carried with it the idea of giving people what belonged to them. Giving people their due. So in the Hebrew, the word mishpat meant if a person deserves punishment... Give them punishment. If they deserve protection, give them protection. If they deserve care, give them care. And it is true that Job felt like he was being treated unfairly. And remember, in the Bible, there are several groups of people who are vulnerable. Orphans, widows... The poor, the immigrant, this is sort of the quartet of people who are constantly being mistreated. Job, remember, says he feels like he's not being treated like a righteous man, but rather like a person who's cursed. He feels like he's being treated like a guilty man. And again, remember, he has made the appeal to God's court and God's judgment. And so Elihu is basically restating what Job has said and then bringing charges against him. You know, earlier this week I was reading about a guy who wanted to do a mission in a very poor part of Baltimore. It was a very difficult neighborhood that was largely African American. The white people had fled this particular neighborhood years and years before. And so he went back into the the neighborhood and he was asked why. And he says, because I want to do justice. And when he got there, the cops thought he was a drug dealer. And the drug dealers thought he was a cop. And so both of them were trying to figure out ways that they could get rid of this guy. And all the while, he's looking at the homeless people, the, the widows, the orphans, the single mothers, the fatherless sons. He's trying to figure out an effective way in order to bring them care, protection. Job, in one sense, feels like he's been accused of doing something wrong, but for the life of him, he can't figure out what it is exactly that he's done wrong. 
And so Elihu, again, is trying to recap his position. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks scorn like water? Or one translation says, who drinks derision like water? And we've already seen it. When it comes to pain, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to difficulty, no one gets the fire hydrant hose like Job. He loses his family. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. Once you think you've lost everything that you could possibly lose, Job just has it keep coming. And so when it says who drinks scorn or derision like like water, and then he says, what man is like Job? And indeed, we should ask that question that Elihu is even asking, what man is like Job? And since Once again, we are left with what the text itself has said and what the book is trying to teach us. Remember, we keep going back to the first two chapters where basically Satan's challenge is, well, yeah, who is like Job? No wonder you take such good care of him. You surround him with your love. You surround surround him with blessings. You surround him with prosperity. And you remember the story. The Lord says, do whatever you want with him, but just spare his life. You'll remember his wife said, curse God and die. Now, the thing that I want to point out to you, that if Satan is right, that he's going to curse God, or his wife is right, that he's going to curse God. If Job really is saying what Elihu is saying, then this should be the end of the book of Job. It's, we're going to test Job. Oh, by the way, Job, you failed the test. And now the book is over. Satan wins. God loses. Job is shown to be less than what God had hoped for. But I don't think that that's part of the point of what's going on. Apparently, there's something more nuanced happening When Elihu says, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men, for he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. What Elihu is basically accusing Job of is what the other people have accused him of, of unrighteousness, of inconsistency, and that he is guilty of blasphemy, of charging God with injustice. For when he says in verse 9, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. He's basically saying, Job, here's what you've said. What good does it do to follow God if everything that I do is right and everything wrong happens to me? Is the charge a valid charge? Is the charge a charge that's going to stick? Now what's problematic in verse 9 is that you might have been reading the book of Job and even following along in the book of Job and been left with exactly the same impression. Well, I don't get it. 
Job loves God. Job prays to God. Job worships God. Job raises his children in a godly way. Job does everything right and everything that could possibly go wrong does go wrong. And you're thinking maybe that about your own life. Hey, wait a minute. I I went to church and I opened my Bible and I read my Bible and I prayed with my children and I, I thought I did what the Bible was asking me to do. So how do you explain what's going on in my life and, and really what good does it do to follow God? What good does it do if you do everything right and you still suffer? Elihu is reproving Job for making the claim That he doesn't understand how he could do everything right. Job in no way has left us with the impression following God is a waste of time. Loving God is a waste of time. Worshiping God is wasting time. Serving God is a waste of time. How else do you explain the statement? Even if he kills me or slays me, yet shall I serve him. But he's asking really a different kind of a question. And he's bringing up another kind of an accusation that we certainly are hard pressed to apply to Job. But in moments of honesty and weakness and sensitivity. We can ask ourselves, have we ever said that? Or have you ever heard someone say that? And how do we answer it? What good does it do to follow God if bad things are going to happen to you anyway? And what answer will you give? Hopefully you will begin to ask and answer the question in light, not just of what the book of Job says, but what every book in the Bible says. That this life is temporal. Eternal life is just that. That the things that happen in this life can't be the defining point of things that happen throughout life. And so Elihu's claim for God is that he is just and fair. And we agree with that claim. But remember what Elihu is doing. He's answering a charge that almost certainly Job isn't guilty of. In verse 10 he says, therefore listen to me. There he goes again. You men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. We agree. Elihu makes the repeated request, listen to me. He's speaking to the three friends. We know because it's in the plural form in the Hebrew language. God cannot pervert justice. We agree. God is incapable of wickedness. We agree. God is just in the way that he deals with mankind. We agree. We know in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, remember when (laughs) Abraham is talking to the Lord concerning the fate of what's going to unfold in Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? We intuitively know that when we are pressed with the issue Is God just? The answer is yes. Is he capable of wickedness? The answer is no. Can he pervert justice? No. But almost invariably, 
Rarely does a day ever go by when someone doesn't ask me a question that impugns impugns the character of God or the goodness of God or the righteousness of God. Well, you know, if God is really the way the Bible says, well, what about the people who've never heard about Jesus? Is it fair that, that God would send people to, to hell? Is this fair? Or is that fair? How do you explain this? How do you explain that? How do you explain the death of this particular person? How do you explain the, the child who loses mother and father in death? How do you explain the suicide? How do you explain the drug overdose? How do you explain the exploitation of people? How do you explain genocide and mass murder. If God is really the God of the Bible, then how do you explain all these things? And the fact that the question is even asked, are you seriously going to tell me that God is going to send people to hell who never ever even heard of Jesus? What what we have to do is we have to, again, once again, invite them into the conversation and help them rephrase the question and make sure that people understand people don't go to hell because they never heard about Jesus. People go to hell because they're sinners by nature and by choice. People go to hell because they're in rebellion and disobedience to God. Is God just? Yes, that means he calls evil, evil, and he calls good, good. In other words, when we ask and we answer the question, we have to frame it in such a way that we have to be able to say, it is true that God is just, but it is also true that God is merciful and full of graciousness, that God has communicated to us his love and a method of redemption and reconciliation. And people go, well, you still haven't answered the Jesus question. And you be, then you can be able to answer that question and say, you know what? There is no name given under heaven whereby people must be saved. You see, the Bible doesn't invite the person who's bitter towards God to make a decision simply based on the bitterness. Paul in the book of Romans says, you're exactly right. They haven't heard about Jesus. Why haven't you gone and told them? How can you in good conscience let your neighbor go to hell? How can you in good conscience not tell every broken person, every empty person, every person who's experiencing this kind of brokenness, how can you not tell them the truth? According to Elihu, what seems like injustice is really justice. Wearsby says, quote, God is paying sinners back for what they do. Job 34.11. In fact, God is so just that he has ordained that sin itself will be a punishment to the evildoer. Psalm 7. Psalm 9.15. Psalm 35 verse 8. What that basically means is this. Is goodness its own reward? In one sense, that's true. Is wickedness its own punishment? In one sense, it's true. Let me give you... A a silly illustration. Imagine you're a mom or a dad and you say to your child, please don't climb that tree. And in rebellion and disobedience, the child climbs the tree, falls from the tree and breaks their leg. Has their disobedience wrought a horrific consequence? Yeah. So is it helpful to go out 
as the child lies under the tree with a broken leg and go, I'm going to spank you for being disobedient. Helpful or not helpful? It's not helpful. Because the rebellion and the disobedience has wrought its own reward. The soul that sins, it shall surely die. We're not, we're not in the business of trying to make things worse than they already are, but to point out the reality that there's a problem. So Elihu says, for he repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Elihu is right when he says, God is just, true. God is incapable of wickedness, true. He's arguing that God is impartial. All of that is true. Elihu's argument goes something like this. God doesn't pervert justice in verse 10. He's just, impartial in verse 11. He's impervious to criticism because he answers to no one because of his sovereign authority over all of the earth in verses 12 through 13. He's the author of life. He's the one who sustains it. Life can't continue without him because he is the author, the finisher, and the determiner of life in verses 14 and 15. Look what it says. Surely God will never do wickedly. We agree. Nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Right on, Elihu. Who gave him charge over the earth? This is Elihu's way of saying, God, who put you in charge? And of course, who did? Is there another God who put this God in charge? And is there another God who put that God God in charge? And of course he's making the point that that's absurd. God wasn't appointed to his throne. All the angels in heaven didn't go, Hey, all in favor of God say I. He wasn't elected to the position. Angels Don't make God sit on his throne. And human beings don't determine whether or not God is going to sit on the throne. God doesn't hold office at the whim of created beings. So to suggest that God is unfair or unkind or unjust, Elihu is making an important argument. It is to suggest that he has no right to reign. Elihu is rightfully pointing out, does God have the right to reign in heaven? The answer is yes. Does he have the right to be sovereign? The answer is yes. The book of Job magnifies the sovereignty of God. From the very first chapter to the middle of this book, to the end of the book, every single chapter screams, God is in charge. God is in control. God is in charge. God is in control. God is in charge. God is in control so that when you start to hyperventilate during all of these weird kinds of speeches that are made against Job, you just go, can we move on? Can we get, can we get to chapter 38 where God finally shows up? Nobody wants to be there more than me. But I've purposed in my heart to teach all of this book. Satan has been told what he can and can't do. God is in charge. Job has cried out during the course of the book and said, I can't see you. I can't feel you. It doesn't feel like you're there. It doesn't feel like you care. 
And when you hear Job crying out, you remember all of the times where Job, where God seemed so far away from you, whether it was in pain or whether it was in distress or whether it was in difficulty. And then we discover something because we've read the first two chapters. And because some of you have made the right choice and continue to read ahead. And you know that God shows up. And you know that in this book, God is aware of every feeling that Job feels. He's aware of every accusation that's made against him. He's aware of every cry that comes through Job's mouth. You begin to understand that in the darkness and in the light and in the presence and in the absence, God is there each and every time. He's aware of his circumstances, his feelings. He's aware of the unkind and ill-informed judgment that's made against him. And so in verse 14 it says, If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. This is Elihu's way of saying that if God wished it to be so, if God said everyone in the universe lights out, everyone's lights would be out. If God recalled his spirit, every single human being that he's created, if God decided just at whatever particular moment to say, I want your heart to stop beating. I want, I want, your, I want the aneurysm in your brain to be released I, or a clot in your leg to go to your head. If God said to his whole creation, I don't want you to any longer... Exist, it would no longer exist. Elihu is making the argument that the very existence of humanity is one of the proofs that God is just. That's a good takeaway. It's Elihu's way of saying, Is God in charge of our very existence? The answer is yes. The Bible teaches that God gives us breath and God takes away our breath. Acts 17, verses 25 and 28. Lamentations 3.22. It's because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. It's because his compassions never fail. Every single morning that you wake up, it's God's vote of confidence that he's not completely done with you. And so, in verse 16, it says, if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. In verse 16, something happens in the text that is difficult to ascertain unless you have at least some understanding of the original language. It goes from the plural to the singular. It's as if Elihu has been talking to Job's friends and the crowd And now, Elihu's focus is on Job himself. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. The substance of Elihu's first argument is that God must be just, or else he wouldn't be God. His second argument at at its core is the contention that if God were unjust... 
there could be no just government on the earth. In verses 16 through 20, as his focus now turns to Job, he offers the argument that one of the most compelling reasons to believe not only in God, but that a God who is just, is because there's something inside of human beings' hearts that long for justice. There's something inside of us that says protection, preservation, that, pun- that wickedness should be punished, and that the vulnerable, the weak, the people who can't take care of themselves should have someone to, to take care of them. And so he's arguing that the reality is that if there's a pale reflection of justice in the world in which we live, then there must be some sense of perfect justice in heaven. And in verse 17, it says, should one who hates justice govern? Every single one of you should underline that, mark it, and send it to your president. Send it to everyone in Congress. Send it to everyone on the Supreme Court. Send it to every governor. Send it to every person who enjoys any kind of leadership. Should one who hates justice govern? If you love bribery, if you love corruption, if you want to exploit the people who need protection, and if you want to deny justice to the people who need it most, you have no business governing. Will you condemn him who is most just? Remember, this is, this is Elihu's way of pointing out to Job and saying, are you seriously going to accuse God of inequality, of wickedness? Of impropriety. It really is a great question. How can someone govern. If they hate justice. How can a father in his home. Make good decisions. If he's not interested. In protecting the innocent. And disciplining. The wicked. Job was a respected local official. You remember we already learned that. Remember in chapter 29, verses 7 through 17. Job remembers standing at the gate. Job has already made the argument and has already given the speech. To which poor person have I been anything less than what God would have me be? In other words, he's already addressed the issue of the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the poor. People who are vulnerable. People who are ignorant. People who are innocent. We know that human government is ordained and established by God. For those of you who have been following along on Sunday in in Romans chapter 13, you already know that. In Genesis chapter 9, we've already learned that government is ordained by God. And government has been ordained by God in order to promote health and prevent harm. That's at the very heart of this issue called justice. Are human beings charged with establishing and promoting justice in the home, in our communities, in our government? The answer is yes. Is it such a stretch to believe that if imperfect humans 
want protection for the innocent and preservation for the weak and punishment for the guilty, is it such a sad stretch to believe that that's what God would want too? And so, we discover in the book of Genesis and in the book of Daniel that God raises up rulers and God tears them down. All you have to do is read the book of Daniel and you discover, oh, God places Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Oh, God places Cyrus in Persia. Oh, God raises up Alexander the Great. And then he dies a drunk in Babylon and divides the kingdom into four. But even though all of this is happening, human governments are rising, human governments are falling. Behind the scenes, there is a God who is ordering and orchestrating that all of human all of human machinations all of human all of the things that are happening in the world are happening in order to fulfill the plans and promises that God has in the person of Christ God has devised a plan of redemption God has provided a plan of redemption that's going to deal with the problem of sin. He's going to satisfy his own nature. He's going to satisfy his sense of justice. He's going to satisfy his deep sense of love and his compassion. Because everything that God is doing, he's doing for a planet of people who are in rebellion against him. And so you see, the vision expands and contracts and expands and contracts. And behind every chapter and behind every verse is God's unfolding plan. God's unfolding plan of grace and love and graciousness. This redemption plan, justice for sin, the satisfaction of his nature. And Elihu says in verse 18... Is it fitting to say to a king, you're worthless, and to nobles, you're wicked, yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich man more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die, in the middle of the night, the people are shaken and pass away, the mighty are taken away without a hand, for his eyes are on the ways of man and he sees all of his steps. We know this. We already know that God is impartial. We know that death comes to the very, very poor. And we know that death can come to the very, very rich. The same child who is taken away by cancer in the Middle East or in Africa... And Steve Jobs, who's a hundred billion, 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 billionaire. What do both of them have in common? Are both subject to disease? Are both subject to death? Is there a God who knows all of these things? The answer is yes. Let's recap. Elihu's first argument. God can't be wicked or unjust because he's God. Second, God must be just, otherwise just government on the earth would be impossible. And now God must be just because if he were unjust, he wouldn't see what's going on. He couldn't see into the heart of human beings. He couldn't discern their mind and their motives. But here's what he says. For his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all of his steps. For the person who believes 
that God is a great designer and creator who winds up the universe and walks away, the Bible says no. My friend Michael Medved said something powerful just the other day. I was reading one of his commentaries and he said, for people who deny that there is such a thing as a good God insists that there must be a good government. You see, for the person who says, there's no God, and if there, there's no God, and God isn't good, these are the ones who insist on a good government. Because they don't believe in a good God. And it never occurs to them that if there's any basis for good government whatsoever, if there's even the hope of justice, it has to be because there's such a thing as a good God and a just God who cares about goodness and justice. A human judge is sinful. A human judge is finite. But God isn't a human judge. In verse 22, there is no darkness nor shadow of death where the worker, workers of iniquity may hide themselves for he need not further consider a man that he should go before God in judgment. So what could God tell What could Job tell God that he didn't already know? There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. People who are wicked can't run away from God. Is there something, remember he's making the claim, Elihu says, you want to talk to God? You want God to hold court and you want to present your case? Job, what is it that you can tell God that he doesn't already know? What is it that you could tell God that would cause him to change his mind? The God of the universe never calls men forward for further explanation. God never says, what? You mean I was wrong? Oh, wow. How could I have let that slip past me? How could I possibly? Wow, if I would have known how you really feel about this, I would have made a different decision. Does that sound like the God of the Bible? God never calls men forward for further examination. Unlike human lawyers or human courts or human judges, God has no need for further evidence. God doesn't need to investigate the claims. God doesn't have to make further inquiry. He always makes the perfect judgment. Verse 24, he breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry and sets others in their place. Again, It doesn't matter if you're great or small. Therefore, he knows their works. He overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. You see, people have this strange idea that only bad things can happen in broad daylight or at night. But he points out night, day. He strikes them as wicked men in the open sight of others. Because they turned back from him and would not consider any of his ways. Here's what he's basically saying. God is just. God is fair. God doesn't do evil in verses 10 through 15. God shows no prejudice, verses 16 through 20. God exposes all evildoers and punishes them in verses 21 through 27. That's part of the point. He hears the cries of the poor. He hears the cries of the needy in verses 28 and 29. In 28, so that they cause the cry of the poor to come to him. For he hears the cry of the afflicted. Remember what we just talked about justice. Care 
provision for the needy, punishment for the wicked. When he gives quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hides his face, who then can see him? Whether it is against a nation or a man alone, Job claimed God's silence was hastening his death. Earlier, Job had said, I just need to hear from God. And I'm not hearing anything. I cry out to him. He doesn't give me a yes or a no. He doesn't give me a left or a right. He doesn't give me an up or a down. The only thing that I think I have to look forward to is to die. And Elihu says, God is silent. God hides his face, his answer. But if he, God, remains silent, who can condemn him? That's what it means in verse 29. When he gives quietness, who then can make him trouble? It's his way of saying, if God chooses not to speak, who can make him speak? This should be a really, really important insight for anyone who's ever talked with God and said, I need to hear from you, and I need to hear you now. And if you don't talk to me, well, I'm not going to go to church. And if you don't talk to me, I'm going to stop reading my Bible. If you don't talk to me, then I'm going to pretend like I'm not a Christian, and I'm going to act just like an unbeliever. Question. Do you think that's going to be an effective way or an ineffective way to get God to talk? Yeah, it's ineffective. In Job 24, the the hint was given by Job that God had passed over men's sins, ignored men's sins. But what right had Job to judge the judge? Wearsby points out that God waited four centuries before judging the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God deferred the catastrophe of a global flood when he shows up and he speaks to Noah and he says in chapter 6, yet 120 years, there's going to be a judgment, but God is going to be patient. You all know 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, but it would probably behoove us to go there. In 1 Peter or excuse me, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, Tragically, when people are crying out to God, they have no idea that the answer that God must bring because of their circumstances is judgment. And so God, because he's so patient, because he's so kind, because he's so generous, because he's so loving and he's so patient and he's so kind, and people are crying out to him, show up, help me, deliver me. And God is looking for a different prayer. The different prayer is in humility. 
and selflessness. I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn to you. And I want to trust you and love you and walk with you. I want to walk away from this lifestyle of wickedness and sin. And I want to walk into your loving arms. Because God is looking for that prayer of repentance. Sinners ought to wake up amazed every day. You mean God has given me one more day that I can turn from my sin and I can turn to the Savior? God rules over the individual and over the nations. In verse 30 it says that the hypocrite should not reign lest the people be ensnared. Do you understand what Allah is saying? That for the person who pretends to love justice, but in fact does not love justice, for the person who refuses to protect the innocent and the wicked, for the person who refuses to punish the guilty, it creates a problem. And so Elihu's correction to Job, he winds up saying what all the others have said, For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more? In other words, has anyone ever said to God, you've disciplined me enough, you've made me, I've learned my lesson, Lord, turn off the hose. I've learned my lesson, Lord, the troubles can now cease. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. He's inviting Job to say, teach me what I do not see. It's Elihu's way of saying to Job, Job, there could be another reason why you're suffering. But in the end, all that your friends have said to you are still probably true. The reason why your life is such a mess is because you've done something horrible and terrible. But again... It's not true. Should he repay it according to your terms just because you disavow it? You must choose and not I. Therefore speak what you do not know. In other words, it's Elihu's way of saying, Job, if I could turn from, if I could just, if I could just admit it for you, I would, but I can't. You're going to have to do it. He's basically saying, ask God to teach you what you don't know. He's saying, Job... Whatever it is that you've done, just promise God that you'll never do it again. And then Elihu pauses and he invites Job to respond. Therefore, speak what you know. And Job doesn't speak, he doesn't answer the accusation. And in verse 34, he says, men of understanding say to me, wise men who listen to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost because his answers are like those of wicked men. And this is the most terrible thing of all. Not only does Elihu accuse Job of not being innocent, of suffering because somehow he's somehow involved in this process of pain, Elihu invites more testing. Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost. Look at verse 36 again. 
I want you to think about what you're reading. Elihu is egging Satan on. Satan, tell me again what you've done. Oh, you've destroyed all of his crops? You've captured all of his possessions? You've killed all of his children? You have afflicted him with the most disgusting disease imaginable. But it's not enough. Satan, bring one more trial. Bring one more test. Bring one more tragedy. Isn't that awful? And that's, that's what we do sometimes. We come across a person who is hurt and broken. And in the most difficult situation of their life. And sometimes we might quietly mutter under our breath, God, give them one more trial. Give them one more difficulty. i got to tell you something. If the book of Job has taught me anything, it is this. That I'm not wise enough, smart enough, or have access to enough information to always be able to draw a right conclusion about a person's circumstance. We should with humility and fear and trembling and great wisdom approach people in pain. In verse 37 it says, For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hand among us and multiplies his words against God. Verse 37 might be difficult for some of you because in our culture and society, when we clap, what does that signify? Approval. We clap when we are approving of something. But in Job's day and in this culture, clapping was a gesture of mockery and contempt. And so when he says, for he adds rebellion to his sin and he claps his hand among us, It's an idiomatic expression which is basically saying all of the stuff that we've said to him, he's been impervious to it. He's unaffected by it. So what are Elihu's charges against Job? You expected God to answer your foolish and defiant demands. You foolishly refused to repent. You foolishly refused to listen to the counsel of the three people and now me. You've spoken without knowledge and wisdom. You've replied to your friends to their questions like a wicked person would do it. And again, here's Job. In the ash heap. In the most difficult place in his life. Listening to the accusations. In his heart, in his heart, in his heart, wondering, what's going on? When's God going to show up? When's he going to speak to me? You see, Elihu's speech is a good speech. It focuses on God's justice. But it leaves out God's compassion, God's mercy, God's grace. God's redemption. In the end, Elihu wants to defend God's justice. 
But he still wants to condemn Job as a sinner. The lesson is fairly clear for each and every one of us. Do we want to defend God to our unbelieving family and our unbelieving friends? Of course we do. But if we're defending God and in our conversations, our wife, our husband, our children, our neighbors all go to hell, then somehow there's some part of the conversation that we have left out, that we've neglected to talk about. Does the justice of God lie in the nature of God? The answer is yes. Is Elihu right when he argues that the very existence of human beings and their continued existence on the planet points to the reality that God is just? I think the answer is yes. If God willed, he could call back his spirit, everyone would drop dead. His creation denies him. His creation rejects him. Elihu argues that God is impartial. That's true. Elihu argues that God has perfect knowledge. That's true. Elihu argues that God has perfect justice. That's true. Elihu suggests that Job speaks without wisdom, speaks without knowledge. I'm going to suggest to you that that may in part be true, but remember what Elihu's accusations don't address. Job's character. Is Elihu intimately involved with the Job who gets up every morning and loves the Lord, who offers worship for his children and sacrifice for his children? Is he intimately aware of the character of God that longs, longs to love the Lord and do what's right? And honor him in every aspect of his life. You see that Elihu is disconnected from the character of Job. We are given a hint. A glimpse of it. In the first two chapters. But we need to be very very careful. We will often judge people by what they say. And, and well we should. But what I'm inviting you to think about is how can I connect the words that that person is speaking to the character that they have. You know, in the end, Elihu is saying, Job, you're stupid. But that can be fixed with the right teaching. Job, you claim to be innocent, but in fact you're guilty. Well, this can be fixed if you'll just confess your sin. And then Job is accused of sedition. He believes, Elihu believes, that Job has falsely claimed that God has done him wrong, that he has denied that God is just, and that that's a blatant act of rebellion. Why? What's his goal? Is it to vindicate God? I'm going to suggest to you that in his heart of hearts, he really wants to do that. But in his vindication of God, he winds up condemning Job 
inappropriately. You know, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing us witness with signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will, The writer of Hebrews invites us to hear the words of God. To understand and accept the sin that separated us from God. But also to accept the miraculous provision of God in Christ. Is it always wrong? Is it always arrogant? Is it always defiant to question the Lord? I think in moments of honesty, each one of us might admit there may have been times in the past where I wasn't exactly motivated by a sincere desire to know the truth about the question that I was asking. That I was willing to condemn God in order to justify myself. But not every question Not every challenge is an act of rebellion or disobedience. And I think that the only way that we can answer this issue is to ask and answer the question, what is our heart condition? What is our circumstance? Are we asking from a humble heart that desires wisdom so that we can understand and obey and please the Lord? And I think that if that's the case, then we're going to be okay. If you're asking questions and you're going, Lord, Lord, I I just need to understand this so that I can obey you and please you in the matter. But we know that it's never a good idea to challenge God, to question His authority. And it's never a good idea. It's never a good idea. It's never a good idea. To accuse God. Of wrongdoing. It's a dangerous thing to do. So. Elihu's speech is going to continue. I'd encourage you. To read chapter 35. In chapter 36, he is going to conclude at chapter 37. If through some miracle I am able to do chapter 35, 36, and 37, if I could do it in a single week, I would love to. Because I so, so, so am ready to hear from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we have heard from you. 
that the writer of Hebrews was right when he said that you have spoken in different ways in different times past through the prophets, but that you have in these last days spoken to us by your own dear son. That, Lord, you've spoken to us about our heart and about our sinful circumstances. You've spoken to us that sin can be forgiven. You've spoken to us that we can experience life and love and grace and mercy. You've spoken to us that a real Jesus loves us, died for us, and has risen from the dead. That a real Jesus is alive and the problem of sin has been dealt with. But Lord, we understand that the problem of false accusation is not completely resolved. Lord, we know that Satan still lies. Lord, we know that our flesh still tempts us to do things that we ought not. Lord, we understand that we live in a fallen and a broken world. Reflected by the fallen and broken people who occupy it. Lord, we pray that we would uphold your justice. But in the same breath, that we would be quick to affirm your mercy, your love, your grace, your compassion. Lord, keep us mindful that any discussion of justice apart from love or any discussion of love apart from justice is probably an incomplete conversation. And so again, we thank you that love and justice is completely satisfied in the cross. Lord, as we prepare for communion now, Lord, we pray that we would rejoice in the fact that in Jesus... Justice is satisfied and love is demonstrated in an unmistakable way. No wonder Paul said, I purpose not to know anything among you except for Jesus and him crucified. Lord, all the discussions about justice and love find their fruition and fulfillment in that cross and sacrifice. We're so grateful for it. Lord, we pray that, again, you'd prepare our hearts. Lord, if there's anything missing, if there's some sin, if there's some wickedness, if there's some imperfection, Lord, we pray that you would bring it to our attention. We pray, Lord, that we would be willing to confess it, forsake it, and walk away from it. And again, experience your love. In Jesus' name, amen.